we're surviving, not thriving, but surviving. How many times have you heard or said something like this over the past year? It's no secret that right now, many in our communities and in our churches are struggling to survive. Few are thriving. People are, many in our, and many in this church are not doing so well, spiritually speaking, either. People are drifting from their daily practice of Bible meditation and prayer. Friendships are growing cold, distanced, and disconnected. Finances are stressing us out as we face job loss and unemployment. Relationships within the home are constantly needing to be reconciled and restored. Many are surviving, but not thriving. Matt Oakham, Pastor Matt, and I pray every Thursday for you in this church to thrive spiritually. But is this even possible and realistic in these times of isolation, instability, and change? It's easy to think, it's impossible to thrive spiritually right now. Let's just focus on surviving. But is this a biblical way of looking at our current situation? Today we're going to look at John chapter 15 together. And this passage is part of what is often called the upper room discourse. This is a precious part of scripture for Christians because these are Christ's farewell words to his followers when it's just him and them in the room. It's not a mixed crowd. Judas has just left the scene. The door is closed. This is a heart-to-heart between Christ and his true disciples. It's an intimate conversation of love between Christ and the people he calls his friends. But like our situation, this was an intense situation. Because Jesus is about to go to the cross to die for them. Then after he's raised from the dead and ascends into heaven, they'll have to face the facts that he's departed. And like us, they may have thought, let's just focus on surviving. But Jesus wouldn't leave them alone, isolated, helpless, and hopeless. In this teaching moment, he'd comfort these believers with words about the coming of the Holy Spirit, who he'd send to be with them and in them. He'd see to it that his followers flourish as opposed to becoming unproductive survivors who grin and bear their existence. He sends his Holy Spirit to take up residence in his followers to empower us, not just to white-knuckle survive, but to thrive spiritually. And if you want to be fruitful in your relationship with Christ, if you want to be fruitful in your walk with Jesus right now during these days, I believe today's text will show you how. And I hope you'll be refreshed to see that what is required for you to thrive spiritually is not more effort and hard work. What is required to be fruitful Christians is rather for you and me to stay close to Jesus by abiding in Him. In this text, we learn that true Christians thrive spiritually by staying attached to Christ. Now, if you have a Bible, please open that Bible to John chapter 15, and we're going to read from uh, verse 1 to verse 17. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 17. Jesus says uh, in verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. 
Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we recognize in truth that there are many days that we are not thriving spiritually. And we want to pray right now that you would change our hearts by your spirit, by your word, by your presence with us. Give us the desires to abide with Jesus and in Jesus. Give us a freshness in our walk with you and a sense that you are close and that we need you more than we naturally will acknowledge. Take us from a place of spiritual survival to a place of spiritual thriving. We pray these things for your namesake, in Jesus' name, amen. In reading these verses, you may have noticed that we just read... uh, the word abide many times. In those verses, uh, the word abide shows up 11 times to be precise. And as we progress through the passage, we'll see that abiding in Jesus is the key to living as fruitful Christians. So it's important for us to understand what it means to abide. This is not a word we probably often use throughout the day. So what does it mean to abide? The word abide means to remain, stay, continue. So this passage teaches that in order to thrive spiritually, to be fruitful Christians, we must by all means stay connected, continue to be connected and attached to Jesus Christ. And the picture that John uses to illustrate our attachment, our connection to Christ, is a branch that is attached to a vine. Here in verses 1 through 6, we get the picture of our attachment to Christ. Look at verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Here is the last major I am statement from Jesus in the Gospel of John, pointing readers once again to his deity as the Son of God. Now, Jesus in this picture uses the image of a vine and branches to describe our relationship to him. He is the, the source of our spiritual life and nourishment. He pours life into us and we gain our life from Christ, the true vine. And he, uh, and he is not the only one on scene here, as we see. He references his father as being the vine dresser. His heavenly father is not distant in our relationship with Christ, but intimately involved in this relationship too. He's likened to the gardener, as some translations put it. He tends to the vine and those who are attached to that vine, and he tends to the vine in two ways. 
First, he cuts off unfruitful branches. And second, he prunes or cleanses the fruitful branches so that they would bear more fruit. The picture is used not so we'd get lost in the gardening analogy, but to describe two kinds of people that follow Jesus. Those who are abiding, staying connected to him, are the fruitful branches. They are the true followers, the genuine believers of Jesus. And those who aren't abiding aren't fruitful because they're not following Jesus. They're not genuine followers of Jesus. Look at verse 2. Each branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. First, let's look at the unfruitful branches. These branches don't represent, they, they represent people, but they don't represent people who actually lose their salvation. The Bible teaches that salvation is the initiative and gift of God. And when God gives you eternal life, you become a new creature in Christ. And he doesn't take that eternal life away from us. It's the gift of God. But what this text does show us is that Jesus is never fooled by mere professions. Jesus doesn't identify everyone as genuine Christians simply because they say, I'm a Christian, or because they got baptized, or because they went to church. Jesus is showing the difference between someone who merely professes Christ and one who actually possesses Christ. There are some people who self-identify with Christ or with Christianity, but aren't truly Christians. And though they look like Christians, they may even talk like Christians, they don't bear fruit or abide in Christ, and they are judged accordingly. They are judged not according to what they say about themselves, but according to what they really are in Jesus' eyes. Not true, not believers, not fruitful, not abiding, and therefore not his. Look at verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. A graphic picture. Abiding in Christ and bearing spiritual fruit is the test of whether or not you are a true Christian. Mere profession, mere saying that you're a Christian, is not the test of whether or not you are a true Christian. Spiritual fruit, abiding in Jesus, is the test. The great object lesson of this branch here uh, that doesn't abide and doesn't bear fruit is Judas, who betrayed Christ after following him for three years. Now, it is an unpleasant and uncomfortable thought, but have you ever wondered how many churchgoers and church members are not true Christians according to Jesus' evaluation? Judas proved to be an unconnected and unfruitful branch, though physically he looked and lived like the rest of the disciples following Jesus for three years. He listened to Jesus, did ministry, probably preached pretty well too, and yet he was not a true disciple of Christ. The bad news is that those who aren't connected to Christ will experience judgment. Jesus is not fooled by mere professions. So this is the first kind of person the text shows us. Those who are false followers of Jesus. But there are other people represented in this text too. There are also true believers in Jesus being represented in this analogy. Look at verse 2, where we see the fruitful branches are pruned to be more fruitful. Verse 2 says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. The fruitful branches are pruned by the gardener, God the Father. Remember, we're talking not of plants here, but of people. This is simply a picture of the Christian life. We get our spiritual life and thrive spiritually because we're attached to Jesus. 
And God prunes away the unfruitful things in our life, if we're genuine, so that we would be more and more fruitful. Now, what is the fruit referring to? Well, much debate has been had on this issue. But in this passage, as we go through it, you'll see that the fruit includes many things. Answered prayer, obedience to Jesus' commands, assurance of our salvation, love for one another, uh, love for other believers, joy and effective witness to the world resulting in new converts. That's a lot. But it's important for us to understand the fruit in a Christian's life is a character, a relational, an effective ministry kind of fruit. God is intimately involved in each Christian's life, producing this fruit through His Son, Jesus Christ. And He seeks to shape us to be more fruitful people. He clips off the unproductive ways we've been drifting from Jesus, the true vine, in order to set us back where we'll be most productive and most fruitful and flourishing. Being pruned is a painful process, but ultimately good for our spiritual well-being. Very much similar to what we would see in Hebrews 12 as the discipline of the Lord. Well, how does God do this? How does He prune His people so that they could be more effective and more fruitful in their life as Christians? How does he make us thrive spiritually? Well, he uses a powerful instrument to do this. He uses his word. Look at verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So the fruitful branches are cleansed by his word. Those who stay attached to Christ stay attached to Christ through his word. If we're not thriving spiritually, we need to start by asking how often we listen and obey and meditate on Scripture. Some of us may not be growing in Christ because we're not in His Word enough. Fruitful Christians are cleansed by the truths of the Bible. God speaks to us and sanctifies us by His Word. Listen to how John Davis puts it. He says this. He says, the reader of the Bible, and let me add the converted reader, the reader of the Bible comes to the text not as a stranger to Christ, who is the central subject of all Scripture, but as one who is actually connected to Christ by the Holy Spirit, as one who is really in the real presence of the risen Lord in prayerful reading of scripture meditating on scripture can and should be a real-time experience of communion with the living christ so we've talked about the two different branches which represent true and false followers of jesus which one are you are you attached to christ or are you just surviving spiritually? If you're not attached to Christ, please send us an email and let us know that you're struggling so that we can help and pray with you. The fruitful branches are people that are cleansed by God's word and they depend on God's son for life. Look at verses 4 through 5. Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Many of you know that when you clip flowers... Uh, away from the plant and you put that as a beautiful vase on the table for some special person in your life that though that's a beautiful flower for now in not too long of time because you've taken that flower out of the vine out of the plant that it gets its life from and draws its life from soon that flower will wilt and die it's dying it's just a matter of time (laughs) 
Well, for us Christians, we need to understand that this is teaching us such an important truth. We cannot bear fruit unless we abide in Jesus, unless we stay attached to him. Now, what's Jesus talking about? Abide in me and I in you. This is one of many New Testament texts that teaches what theologians call union with Christ. We are in Christ and Christ is in us. Now listen to what Leon Morris says commenting on verses 4 through 5. No branch bears fruit in isolation. It must have vital connection with the vine. So to abide in Christ is the necessary prerequisite of fruitfulness for the Christian. The man who so abides in Christ and has Christ abide in him keeps on bearing fruit in quantity. And the verse concludes with an emphatic declaration of human helplessness apart from Christ. In isolation from him, no spiritual achievement is possible. Friends, the spiritual life is not white-knuckling, grinning and bearing. It's abiding. That's the way. That's the highway to flourishing as Christians. So in short, if you want to be a fruitful Christian, keep close to Jesus. As Spurgeon said, beware of a Christless Christianity. Keep clinging to Christ who provides you with sap and sustenance for your Christian life. Fruitfulness and flourishing will come when you and I stay attached to him even when times are tough, even right now. Stay attached to Christ. He provides strength. He provides spiritual strength. He provides spiritual power. He provides spiritual life for you and I to thrive spiritually. Are you staying attached to Christ right now? Now that we've seen the picture of our attachment to Christ, how will we live this out? And what are the benefits of living it out? And there are many benefits of living this out. Look at the benefits of staying attached to Christ in verses 7 through 11. First, let's look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. The first step of staying attached to Christ in our text is scripture immersion. Immersion. Having Christ's words abide, remain, continue, stay in us, on our hearts, and in our mouths. They say the best way to learn a language is to immerse yourself in a place where all they speak is that language. Well, I think scripture shows us in many places that the best way to learn Jesus is to immerse ourselves in his word. Abiding in his word, being saturated in his words, lets uh, the word fill our minds, affect our emotions, our attitudes, our motives, our perspectives, and yes, even our behavior. Are you regularly immersing yourself in God's word? If not, why not? Don't give me an excuse. You have all the time. I mean, come on, guys. There are some things that this pandemic has certainly caused a lot of trouble. But we have a lot of opportunity to thrive spiritually, even though there are many things going on that are outside of our control. Spending hours looking at memes, spending hours watching videos. We can spend hours clinging to Christ through his word, can't we? Yes, we can. Don't give me an excuse. Don't give Jesus an excuse. Well, if you are immersing yourself, abiding yourself in the words of Christ, look at the promise of the text at the end of verse 7. Look at the benefit for you. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. The first benefit of staying in God's word is answered prayer. 
Scripture-filled people who fill their prayers with Scripture experience answered prayer. Because when we pray the words of God back to God, we pray according to God's will. Answered prayer is a mark that we are indeed remaining, staying attached to Christ. Do you pray Scripture over those who ask you for prayer? Find a text that resonates with your heart and pray that over your friends who ask for prayer. May I encourage you to pray some of Paul's prayers in his letters for the people that ask you for prayer. That's the kind of prayer that God loves to answer. Now, this doesn't mean that God is a genie in a bottle that does what we ask him to do, that must do as we ask him to do. That would be misunderstanding this text and misunderstanding who we are in light of the Lordship of God. But it does mean that God desires to work through our prayer. And he does work through our prayer and your prayer. And those who are most mature in their walk with Christ know how effective the prayer of a righteous person really is. They experience Answer prayer. They immerse themselves in the word and they immerse their prayer in the word as well. The second benefit of staying in Christ, clinging to him, is assurance. Assurance of our salvation. Assurance that we are indeed Christians. True, genuine followers of Jesus. Look at verse 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Christians who remain connected to Jesus have assurance. They can be confident that they are indeed Christians. They know who they are and they know whose they are. They're not fragile or insecure about what you say about them because their standing with God is sure and secure. And they're fruitfully living for the glory of God. By the way, this kind of person shouldn't stick out in church. A fruitful Christian is not a super Christian. A fruitful Christian and one who experiences assurance is simply a true Christian. A legitimate follower of Christ experiences assurance as they walk with Him. However, this kind of person does stick out in the watching world. And every day, their walk with Jesus is proving to those around them that Jesus is alive and well as He works in their life. Because they're bearing much fruit. These closely connected disciples are fruitful Christians and they provide a powerful witness to the watching world. Listen again to Leon Morris on verse 8. He says, Discipleship is not static, but a growing and developing way of life. Always the true disciple is becoming more fully a disciple. So it is with disciples of Christ. We're called to abide in Christ in order to bear fruit. And the way we abide in Christ, the more, sorry, and the more we abide in Christ, the more fruit we bear. We grow spiritually as we cling to Christ in prayer, in obedience and scripture immersion, drawing life from Him. And this brings glory to the three person God. But that's not all. Prepare to be floored by the love of God. Look at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. The third benefit of staying attached to Christ is that we receive Christ's love in us. In Sunday school, our children learn the song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Yes, it does. And this verse is not just for believing children. It's a rock-solid truth for mature Christians to be nourished with as well. 
This is the believer's theme song, isn't it? Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. But what's radical about this verse is that Jesus doesn't just say generally, I love you. I mean, that would be precious enough to hear from the Savior and Lord of the world that he loves me. That would be beautiful and wonderful enough. But Jesus goes way beyond this. He says he loves us with the same love that the Father has for him. He likens his love for us to the love that the Father has loved him with. Now this is shocking because the Heavenly Father has loved His Son from eternity. Now commenting on this verse, Michael Reeves says this, The Bible is awash with the talk of the Father's love for the Son. But while the Son clearly does love the Father, hardly anything is said about it. The Father's love is primary. The Father is the loving head. And the shape of the father-son relationship, the headship, begins a gracious cascade. Like a waterfall of love as the father is the lover and head of the son. So the son goes out to be the lover and head of the church. Then he quotes John fifteen nine: As the father has loved me, so have I loved you, the son says. And therein lies the very goodness of the gospel. As the Father is the lover, and the Son the beloved, so Christ becomes the lover, and the church the beloved. Friends, we are the beloved. That means that Christ loves the church first and foremost. His love is not a response given only when the church loves Him. His love comes first, and we only love Him Because he first loved us. 1 John 4.19 Then Jesus says, at the end of this riveting statement, abide in my love. And how do we abide in Christ's love? If your heart's been captured and melted by the idea that he loves you so, he loves you that much, you abide in Christ's love by obeying his commands an obedient christian is thriving spiritually and we never po- we never move past this maturity in the church doesn't look like people who know everything or give orders maturity in the church looks like people who seek to obey jesus and everything that he has commanded us by all means. And his church is one of the, sorry, and his love is one of the great motivations for our obedience. Jesus goes on to say that obedience is remaining in his love. Look at verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. The commandments that Jesus refers to are reduced to one command in verse 12. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And he's here saying, obey the commands, abide in my love, and check it out, I obeyed the Father's commandments. I gave you a picture of a flourishing human being. And my life, Jesus says, is a life marked by obedience to the commands of Scripture. Obedience to my Father's commandments. And that is how I abided in His love. So here's another practical test of whether we're thriving in Christ. He says, love each other as I have loved you. How are your relationships with other Christians going? More specifically, how are your relationships with the people inside this church going? Are you loving one another, abounding in love? Now, we don't do it perfectly, but here's the standard of our love for one another, the cross of Christ. 
Jesus, the one who was sacrificed for the sake of others, gives us an example. Love as I have loved you. The one who gave himself up for us, dying on the cross, raising for the dead. That self-giving love is hard, and you cannot, I assure you, you cannot do it without Jesus. Without clinging to him. But if you are attached and clinging to Jesus, this will be true of you. You will be loving others. And what's the result of this abiding in Christ's love? This loving one another, obeying his word, obeying his commands. What's the result? What's the way we can see this flourishing in a person's life? The benefit of remaining in Christ is that Christ's joy remains in us. Look at verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I give you these commands so that you would live a completely joyful life. Not to take away joys, to steal joys. No, I'm not into that. I'm into pouring out a flourishing life into my people and allowing them to experience the joy and completeness of it that is found by loving others and obeying my commands and loving me. Obedience to Christ produces joy in us just as obedience to his Father produced joy in Jesus. To obey the commandments of God simply to follow rules would be a drag. But to obey the commandments of God because we know and love and experience the joy of communion with this God is one of the choicest delights of life. Again, listen to Leon Morris who captures this connection between obedience and joy so well. He says this, It is no cheerless, barren existence that Jesus plans for his people, but the joy of which he speaks comes only as they are wholehearted in obedience to his commands. To be half-hearted is to get the worst of both worlds. You may know, and I know for sure, because I've experienced it, that a disobedient Christian is the most miserable type of person. But an obedient person, an obedient Christian, is a joyful, happy, blessed person. Church members, Christian friends, Are you right now filled with joy? If not, what commands of God are you disobeying right now? Let's just start there. Repent of your disobedience to the things of God you know you're disobeying. And run back to Jesus, the lover of your soul. Obeying him will restore joy in you. You know what the best command for you to consider right now? to obey would be repent and believe the gospel. Start there. Start with repentance. Obey that command. Turn back to Jesus. He will give you joy. Obeying him restores joy in us. He gives us joy. The last thing we see in this text is the test of our attachment to Christ. Verse 12 says, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. This is Christ's commandment to us. Love one another as he has loved us. This is the new commandment found in John 13, 34-35, where Jesus says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How about this for an evangelistic strategy to reach the world? Church, get serious about loving one another as the cross represents love. Have a gospel-shaped love for one another and watch the picture it represents to the watching world. What makes this commandment new? These five words... As I have loved you. The test of our attachment to Christ is proven by our love, our outgoing love for other believers. 
We're to extend sacrificial love in our relationships with one another. But not just any sacrificial love, not the sacrifice of a few dollars when you buy ice cream for someone. The sacrifice we're talking about here is the sacrifice of Christ's cross to transform the way we love one another in the church. The cross shapes our love for one another. It's an outgoing, sacrificial love that pours itself out for the sake of another. We're to show some gospel grit, friends, in our love for one another. Oh, we've got to cling to Jesus for this. You and I don't have this in our own resources. It's not going to come from inside of us. We need resources that are found in Jesus. Friends, we're to go beyond what's comfortable and show some love in ways that resemble the death and resurrection of Christ for us. History and even Scripture knows of no greater love than that of Christ when he laid down his life for his friends at the cross. Have you come to experience that love for you? Have you believed in Christ Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And what characterizes Jesus' friends? Again, we see the primacy of obedience. Obedience doesn't make us friends of Jesus, but it's a description of his friends. It's what marks our lives. It doesn't bring us into a relationship with Jesus. Christ's friends do what he commands them. Look at verse 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Now for Christ to call us friends is a high privilege. And not only do we benefit from the cross where he died for us, but Christ doesn't treat his friends as an emperor treats his servants. In this case, servants simply do what they're told and there is no conversation beyond the to-do list. You come here, you do what I say, you go. But for disciples of Christ, though we never want to confuse the order of our relationship to Jesus, But for disciples of Christ, we're told here that our closeness with him has taken us beyond the old natural order of servants to rulers. He calls us friends. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. But he calls us friends. Our Lord is a loving Lord, and he chooses to tell us the wonders of his Father's love and his Father's plans for us and for the world. He actually shares his heart with us. He brings us into the conversation. He makes known to us all that he's heard from his Father in eternity past. We see these words in Scripture, in the Gospels. What a privilege to be called a friend of Christ. He has revealed his plans for us. But just in case we get big-headed and think that this privilege is because we're somehow better than others. And just in case the original hearers of this, the disciples, got big-headed, Jesus bursts the bubble right away. We have this great privilege to be called Christ's friends, not because we made the right choice to follow him. Rather, we're privileged because Christ chose us. There is no place for boasting of how great we are in the church. We're sinners saved by an amazing Savior. And Jesus says this in verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. How do we know if we're thriving in Christ as individuals and as a church? Well, we're being tested not by our own curriculums, but by our Lord himself and his word. And he says he chose us and appointed us to get out on mission and bear fruit. We're thriving, church. We're thriving, Christian individual, when we're bearing fruit and when that fruit remains... 
Now, what is the fruit referred to specifically in verse 16? Don Carson and many other good Bible commentators believe that the fruit described here are new converts. And while new converts obviously need people to preach the word to them, notice the presence of prayer in verse 16. Scripture once again is providing a counterintuitive, countercultural, counter-nature way of thinking. Verse 16, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now, if fruitfulness in mission, more specifically, new converts, if new converts is the fruit in Jesus' mind here, which most commentators suggest, then how important is our prayer life, church, our prayer life for unbelievers to come to Christ? One of the means God uses to bring about new converts is a prayerful, loving church. But not only that, a lovingly warm church is attractive to the watching world and effective for outreach. How important do you think it is that a church display a warmth of love shaped by the gospel for one another? Look at verse 17. Jesus sums things up. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Repetition is one of the best teachers, they say. How many times have we heard this command to love one another? Fruitfulness in Christianity is not a private practice. It's a team sport. We need to be connected to Jesus absolutely and indeed. And we need to be connected to one another to thrive spiritually. We need to obey Jesus absolutely, individually, yes, and together, yes. We need to love one another and pray for one another together. But we also need to pray for the unconverted people personally, individually, yes, but together too. That's fruitfulness. That's thriving. That's flourishing church life. Could it be? Friends, that you and I don't see more new converts because we're not praying for new converts. Oh Lord, may it never be true of us. Forgive us, Lord, for turning our eyes away from the loss around us. Church, we are a thriving and fruitful church when we're bringing people into the family of God. God does the saving, absolutely. But He uses means. He ordains salvation from eternity past, absolutely. But He also ordains the providences and situations in people's lives and He puts people in our life so that we would bear fruit to bring converts to Christ. Now listen, if this is the curriculum for fruitfulness and fruitful Christian living, if this is the criteria, would you say you're a fruitful Christian? Would you say you're, we're a fruitful church? Lord, have mercy on us. How could we forget to pray for the lost? Forgive us for our unbelieving, unloving hearts unprayerful hearts. Let us pray together for prodigals to come home. Let us pray 2 Peter 3, 9 for the people that we love in our lives by name. Together! Listen as we close to these words from Don Carson. With these references to fruit and to its enduring quality, it becomes clear that these closing allusions to the vine imagery ensure that however comprehensive the nature of the fruit that Christians bear, the focus on evangelism and mission is truly central. 
The union of love that joins believers with Jesus can never become a comfortable, exclusivistic huddle that only they can share. Doubtless, it is a unique union, an extension of the union of the Godhead. But by its very nature, it is a union, an intimacy, by which the necessity of its own constitution seeks to bring others into its orb. It's outgoing. The fruitfulness of a Christian life and a Christian church is outgoing. It's outreaching. There's a picture of a fruitful Christian here. And there's a picture of a fruitful church here. Those who enjoy their love relationship with Jesus want to share it with others. Our intimacy with Jesus is connected with our fruitfulness in mission. A church that doesn't enjoy intimacy with Jesus doesn't want to share him. That kind of church seeks to be comfortable with their exclusivistic huddle. They're the kind of church that's surviving. Not thriving, but surviving. May we all within this church take this challenge to heart and make every effort to grow in our intimacy with Jesus so that we may bear fruit in sharing him with others. This brings glory to the Father. This is thriving spiritually. This is thriving in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we admit we've grown cold. We must abound in love for you, in obedience to you, in our intimacy with you, in our love for one another, in our reach out to our neighbors, friends, family, and the lost around us. Forgive us our sins, we pray. We come close, we draw near to you, draw near to us, we pray. Grant us a freshness, a revival in our hearts so that it would ripple out to be a revival in our church and city, country and world. We desire to see new converts in this church, in this city. Grant us, we pray, the opportunity to be fruitful Christians as we abide in you. In Jesus' name.